Hello everyone, I'm Giulio Prisco and this is the Turing Church podcast. In June 2020, I was interviewed by Aga Bahari for the Neo Human Show. We discussed a lot of things in one hour, including religion, transhumanism, spaceflight, physics, mathematics, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and of course Turing Church and my book Tales of the Turing Church. Follow Aga on Twitter, where he goes by Agologist, and watch the Neo-Human videos on YouTube. Aga gave me permission to redistribute the audio of this interview in the Turing Church podcast. So, here we go. Hello and welcome to the 77th episode of Neo Human Podcast. I'm Aga Bahari, Edagologist on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow the show on liveinlimbo.com, iTunes, YouTube, BitChute, and soon on Spotify. And today with me, I have Julio Prisco. Welcome to Neo Human Podcast, Julio. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Uh, let's start with your background, just so our audience have some kind of a context where your perspective is coming from, the work you've done, the lives you've lived, and what are you mainly focused on now these days? Let me make that as short as possible. I am a theoretical physicist by training. I worked in places like CERN, Geneva, the European Space Agency, and uh, similar places, including uh, the research and development organization of the European Council until 2005. Then I became an entrepreneur. Uh, I ran uh, a company focused on IT and virtual reality consulting for a few years. In the meantime, I started to develop uh, my own uh, um, how to say speculations on life uh, the universe and everything, and I have been ra- uh, writing about that. That's what I mostly do now. Mm, I write with some uh, freelance writing now and then. Was and that, that's it. Was there some kind of a specific event that made you interested to think about philosophy and because you also, one of the main reasons that I really wanted to talk to you is you have a very unique perspective towards religion and technology. I'm just interested to know if there was any specific kind of an event in your life that made you interested in whatever you want to call this, religious, spiritual, philosophical perspective instead of purely scientific and objective perspective. A specific event? No, I don't really think so. In fact, uh, if I remember what I was thinking when I was very young, but really very young, like six or seven, I thought exactly the same things that I think now. Well, of course, not uh, as far as the details are concerned, but the general impostation was already there. Now, coming to religion, it's interesting because my family was not really religious. We didn't go to church. By and large, we considered religion as uh, something that other people do. Mm. As a matter of fact, I have never, uh, I always had uh, uh, some religious sensibilities, but I never really thought about that until uh, 
the moment where uh, I realized that uh, science itself is pointing uh, very strongly toward the directions that uh, have been already explored by religions. So one thing after another, uh, I do call myself uh, religious now. If I have to make the binary choice, religious or not religious, yes, religious is what I call myself. Yeah, but you would have a different definition of religion than, let's say, Christians and Muslims and Jews and the the big religions, big authoritarian organized religions. Am I right? Uh, most people would say yes. Mm. My answer is uh, no. I don't really think so. You know, uh, every religion that I'm familiar with or every religion that I even uh, uh, vaguely know about has uh, two different parts. One is the part that I call cosmology. You know, answers to big questions about uh, reality, survival after death, you know, the nature of the thing itself. And the other is what I like to call uh, uh, geography, or even uh, uh, zoning norms, you know, all the little uh, prescriptions about what you have to eat, uh, when you have to do things, and uh, with whom, you know, the prescriptive, uh, normative part of religions. Now, uh, I don't really care about the latter. I don't care about this geography and uh, zoning norms at all. But I think that here is where the differences between different religions can be found. When it comes to the first part, uh, the metaphysical, cosmological parts of religions, I tend to think that they are all saying pretty much the same thing, in different words, of course, and in the language of the place and uh, time, where these religions uh, originated. But, you know, once you go past all that, I find that uh, the basic message of different religions are very, very similar. Interesting. We've been talking about the definition of God for the past couple of episodes. I had... um the last episode, I have James Lindsay, who has a PhD in mathematics, but he's also writing and talking about philosophy mostly. And he's an atheist. He started um, with the new atheist movement to talk about his philosophical perspectives. But the definition of God that he disagrees with is the definition of God that I also disagree with, which is this authoritarian very human-like kind of a figure that will judge you and send you to heaven or hell, punish or reward you. But at the same time, I think this whole concept of God has been hijacked by people who wanted to control others based on some kind of a higher authority that there is no way you can argue with or have any kind of a conversation with. But to me, God is very subjective in a sense that anybody can find their own um interpretation of God, and it's everything and everywhere. I would agree with that. Mm. And how do, you, how do you see this definition of God is becoming more and more um, at least a matter of debate 
considering the technological evolution and technological revolution that we are going through in our societies today? Uh, definitely. In fact, let's uh, think about what uh, the ultimate results of uh, the technology development that we can see around us now could be. It seems uh, kind of uh, evident that uh, we live um, in a world that would appear uh, uh, magic to our uh, grandfather because our technology enables us to do things that they could uh, very uh, hardly imagine. And this uh, trend can be expected to continue. If this trend continues, then I think that uh, in a few hundred years or a few thousand years, I'm not really very concerned about uh, timelines. In the future, someday, we will be in an interstellar civilization with uh, a knowledge, understanding of the universe and uh, powers that we could only call uh, godlike today. And I think the same thing has happened countless times in the history of the universe. And that when we will go to the stars, we will find there some civilization that we could only call uh, 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 gods. In fact, uh, you can see a, a hierarchy of uh, life, intelligent life forms with uh, greater and uh, uh, greater capabilities. And perhaps this hierarchy goes on forever until something which is uh, infinitely far in the future, in space and time, and infinitely more uh, powerful than anything that we can conceive of now. And that's something we could only call God. Mm -hmm. And that uh, would be my definition of God, something like that, more or less. Do you think that is the concept of God is something that is knowable, ultimately, or it is something that is by design and by nature of it is unknowable? Uh, I'm open to both possibilities. Um, I'm open to the possibility of a, a natural God, which should uh, uh, basically be an uh, enhanced uh, civilization with respect uh, to us humans, much more powerful than us, but uh, ultimately understandable. And if... Uh, um, there is uh, just a limited number of uh, facts that can be known about the universe. That is very likely the case, because if uh, at some point science uh, reaches its ultimate limits with the theory of everything and something like that, then once you have uh, mastered that theory, theory of everything, there is uh, nothing more that you can know and there is nothing more that you can do. In this case, uh, I think uh, whatever uh, God there is, it is something that uh, we can ultimately understand, not only understand, also become. 
Uh, but now there is also another possibility, and this other possibility is that uh, the breadth and uh, depth of our uh, knowledge of nature will never end. And here I'm talking of, you know, a fractal-like uh, theory of uh, physics with uh, theories within theories in an endless fractal zoom, like, you know, like uh, an onion with uh, an infinite number of layers, one inside the other. Now, if that is the case, the quest for uh, more and more uh, knowledge will uh, never end. And whatever definition of God you want to adopt, that uh, God can only be found at the ultimate uh, bottom of this onion with an infinite number of layers. That uh, is not uh, anything that we can imagine uh, achieving. Now, I don't know which of these two possibilities is the case. I don't think everyone knows. But uh, in both cases, we can uh, conceive of a consistent uh, concept of God. Was that clear? Yeah, the concept of M-theory, to me, it seems like itself can be seen as some kind of a objective human-like or human-made religion that there is some kind of an ultimate answer that we as humans can get to it. But the we that you talk about becoming interstellar species, as I see it, it's not going to be us humans in our biological forms. It will be at least the way that I understand it as of right now, a hybrid between us biologically and our machines that uh, are being developed now, whether you know, want to call it AGI, AI, whatever. AI is narrow, but AGI, super intelligence, whatever you want to call it. So I just see that M-theory being the be-all, end-all is very limited kind of a perspective that is being made based on our human understanding of everything, which is very, very narrow. I think so. In fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, the M theory, which is a version of uh, string theory, is something that has been created or uh, discovered or invented by human mathematicians at the beginning of the 21st century. Well, actually, at the end of the 20th. Uh, now, we have hundreds of years ahead. We have thousands and millions of years ahead, I hope. Do we really think that a theory that uh, we can already describe can ever be the ultimate theory of science? I, it could be, but I personally don't think so. I think uh, the quest for better understanding will never end. Now, coming to uh, what our uh, descendants who will live among the stars will be, um, I think... Uh, of course, uh, they will not be identical to ourselves now. There will be hybrid uh, human uh, AI or perhaps AI augmented with uh, human uploads, uh, human uploads augmented with AI implants, uh, post-biological life and all that. I think uh, that's the inevitable evolution of things. But why shouldn't we call them human anyway? And, uh, 
we are very different from our ancestors 2,000 years ago, who called uh, themselves human, and uh, we call human ourselves. And I think we are right, because we are the direct continuation and evolution of them. And I see that happening in the future as well. The human species will uh, uh, leave the Earth, we will uh, multiply across uh, the galaxy, and we will become other things. But these other things will be a direct continuation of what we are now. And therefore, uh, if our name, if the name of our species is human now, uh, that name will continue to be human in the future. Hmm. What you mentioned about string theory is also something that keeps coming up. The way that string theory became a status quo in academia and physics department, that if you were researching or studying anything else other than string theory, they wouldn't give you grants, they wouldn't give you budget. All the budgets and grants and all the focus um, would have gone to string theory for many, many years. And it begs the question, I'm wondering if you experienced a similar thing where you worked in the research um, and scientific um, capacities and places in, in, in Europe, that the way that it was being treated, or it has been treated, string theory, is that it shut down all other fields of research or any other kind of a narrative that would disagree with it for... Um, for the sake of basically protecting the interest of people at the top of that uh, echelon of academia. Have you experienced something like that? I haven't really experienced uh, anything like that myself because uh, through, I am a theoretical physicist by training. I switched to applied physics very soon in uh, my career. So even if uh, I have always uh, st stayed uh, interested in uh, theoretical physics, I have not really been working on that for uh, 20 years after graduating from college. So no, I haven't seen that. Uh, now there's one observation that I'd like to make, uh, which is that perhaps uh, uh, you are uh, making this a bit too extreme in the sense that uh, yes, String theory is the dominating uh, uh, approach to uh, new physics, but it's not the only one. For example, when it comes to quantum gravity, there are uh, other approaches uh, different from string theory. For example, low quantum gravity. And you can get research uh, grants if you do that. So it's not that uh, uh, extreme. It's not like if you don't work in string theory, you cannot work as a theoretical physicist in academy. But it is uh, through what you say that uh, string theory is uh, certainly the dominating part of today's research in uh, theoretical physics, physics. And it's also very true that uh, the academic environment tends uh, to enforce uh, some uh, conformity over uh, scientists. 
and uh, especially young scientists. And you basically have to do what you're told. And uh, you have to do research in the fields that are uh, recommended. It has always been like that. It's nothing new. And uh, I don't like that uh, state of things very much. Yeah, I think it's just a consequence of making things into institutions, right? That then they'll become or they'll be driven on the basis of politics and business rather than the search for of truth. Course. Of course. You know, it's uh, exactly the same thing that you were saying uh, uh, before about religion. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, basically a human thing. And at some point, uh, everything becomes uh, entangled with uh, power dynamics uh, and, you know, these things. Mm. It doesn't happen in science only. It doesn't happen in religion only. It does happen everywhere. It's a human state. It is. And this is something that you think will be translated into early versions of more comprehensive AI, or this is something that for AI to reach its full potential, it has to break through it. Then it, and if that's the case, it doesn't really matter what the human perspective is because it will be everything. Okay, let's uh, think about what AI is first. Now, at this moment, the only examples of AI that uh, we know and we understand are not intelligent at all. What do I mean with that? And looking at things like the fact that now a supercomputer can beat the best uh, human players at uh, uh, Go, which used to be uh, used to be considered as an extremely difficult game behind beyond the capability of every of any machine just a few years ago. You know, these are really impressive things. Mm. But uh, does not mean that that supercomputer, AlphaGo, is intelligent. It means that it can do one thing very well, very well and very fast, much better and much faster than us. Well, in this specific uh, case, uh, much faster is enough. But uh, knowing how to do one thing very well does not mean being an intelligent being. And what we call uh, AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, is still, uh, uh, is still uh, uh, missing. And I personally think that it's not beyond the corner at all. I mean, we will... I think, develop real human-like artificial intelligence sooner or later. But I don't think it will be that soon. We will develop it uh, someday, so. And uh, soon, after, uh, soon after that, we will be thinking about a super-intelligent AI, which means uh, AI much smarter than humans. And here there is a quote from uh, Nick Bostrom's uh, book, which I'd like to repeat. We are not uh, talking about uh, much smarter in the sense that one person is uh, smarter than another. We are really talking about much smarter in the sense that uh, we are smarter than uh, Beatles. 
it's a huge difference in order of magnitude. And uh, it's very difficult for us to even imagine what uh, the thoughts and uh, the motivations of these uh, super intelligence AIs uh, could be. But having said that, and also because I don't think the process will be very fast. It will not be like, uh, you know, one day there is uh, nothing and the day after that there is a godlike super intelligent AI. I see things happening much more uh, gradually than that. And there will be ample opportunities for uh, co-evolution of humans and machines, as Ray Kurzweil has said many times. Humans and machines will eventually merge and become so deeply entangled that uh, it, will be, it will be very difficult to separate them and it will be very difficult to say uh, which is which. Not only difficult, but uh, also pointless, perhaps. That's the evolution that we are moving forward toward. What would be the test to see whether or not artificial intelligence has reached the human level intelligence. The, is it still Turing test? I know that you're a co-founder of the Turing church and I'm very interested to know more about that. But do you think that the Turing test is still something that is viable for defining uh, no. whether or not it's not anymore? No. The Turing test is uh, defined as follows. If uh, uh, you talk to a machine, for example, uh, chatting on a computer screen, on a computer screen, and if you are not able to tell the difference between that machine and the human, then that machine has uh, uh, passed the Turing test. Uh, now we already have machines that come very close to passing the Turing test in the sense of being able to fool everyone into thinking that they are human. Now, this is not the case of those uh, um, limited artificial intelligence uh, systems that uh, you talk to when you want to book uh, a flight or something like that. Not narrow. But not narrow. But, you know, the research frontier of artificial intelligence is uh, moving toward uh, producing uh, systems that I think will be able to pass the Turing test very soon, but that's not yet human-like artificial intelligence. And uh, consciousness, whatever it is, is still missing from the equation and I think could uh, remain uh, missing for a quite long time. So I don't think we are on the verge of achieving real artificial intelligence. We are moving toward that, sure, but it's not going to happen next week. Yeah, so we are building the, th the thinking mind in the artificial sense of a way, but we are not, I mean, the way that the brain is split between right brain and left brain we are making the left brain into a, a artificially built kind of an intelligence, but the right brain 
where intuition, I guess, and consciousness and these kind of terms, we don't even, we, we can't even uh, define them. Like we throw them exactly. around, but we don't really know what they mean. <laughs> Something like that. We are uh, building some uh, elements of artificial intelligence, but we are not even too close to understand what other necessary elements are. And uh, consciousness, intuition, as you say, are examples. So for that intelligence to reach its full potential, do you think that humans at some point will be on the way of it, that we just need to get away, uh, get out of the way and let the machines take control, not the, not completely take control, but like what we discussed, that we, we can't even define consciousness. There is no point in even discussing whether or not we can build it, but maybe machines will have a much better understanding of it, but humans will be on the way of the research and finding finding the truth about that. I cannot deny this possibility because, you know, I prefer to be more optimist myself and I prefer to think that we'll uh, be co-evolving with machines and uh, uh, gradually uh, gradually emerging with machines like uh, we were discussing uh, a few minutes ago. Would you talk a little about the Turing test, uh, the uh, Turing Church? Sure. Uh, first, a Turing Church is not a church, <laughs> in the sense that it's not an organized religion. Right. Mm, as a matter of fact, strictly speaking, Turing Church is uh, the name of uh, a scientific uh, conjecture due to Alan Turing and uh, Alonso Church. The conjecture can be formulated in uh, uh, many ways, one of which being that uh, what a certain computer of a certain complexity can do, another computer of uh, equivalent complexity can do. And this uh, conjecture points to things like uh, the ultimate feasibility of mind uploading and the uh, merging between uh, humans and machines. So the name Turing Church is a tongue-in-cheek name. But having said that, uh, it has some of the features of a church. At this point, Turing Church is a discussion uh, group with a wide uh, presence on the web and uh, the social networks on the intersections between uh, religion, science, engineering, science fiction, space, all that. Mm, I have been asked many times whether um, I want uh, to launch Turing Church as an organized religion. And uh, I have been thinking about that. But uh, the answer that I give to myself and that I have given others is that uh, I don't think there is any need. Mm, 
I don't think there is any need because the need of an organized religion where uh, men, uh, where these kind of things can uh, be discussed is uh, already provided by things like the Christian Transhumanist Association or the Mormon Transhumanist Association, of both of which I am a member. And I think as far as organization is concerned, I do prefer to leave things uh, in their hands. So if uh, Turing Church is a religion, then it's a very disorganized one mm-hmm. by design. Yeah, that seems to be the more appropriate kind of an approach to having any kind of a religion at, at this point. I think so also because, you know, uh, there are uh, people who want to be uh, believers and there are also those who don't want to be believers. Uh, for uh, the first uh, kind of uh, people, those who like to belong to an organized religion, we already have many established organized uh, religions like uh, Christianity. And there are organizations within those religions like uh, the Mormon Transhumanist Association, the Christian Transhumanist Association. Uh, I have met uh, people who are already thinking of an Islamic Transhumanist Association too. Uh, So within established religion, there are already discussion spaces for uh, believers where these things are discussed. Now, when you come to the other uh, group of people, those who want to stay as far as possible from organized religion because of uh, uh, many personal reasons, because of uh, a bad experience that they had with organized religions, or because they think uh, organized religions have not been uh, entirely positive in their effects. Also, that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's, uh, yeah, that's very true. For uh, this kind of uh, people who want to stay very far from uh, organized religions, then perhaps the Turing Church disorganization or uh, uh, non-religion can play a role equivalent to religion for uh, important things like uh, personal happiness and peace of mind. So what is the main contribution of religion at this point? Is it ethics and morality or is is there something else that religion can provide for people at this point right now? Well, not only right now, it has always been like that. But but things have changed. The benefit of religion is... uh, the possibility to think that uh, you will uh, live again after death and you will see your loved ones again. That's the whole point. That's not the whole point, but I think that is the main point. But what about ethics and morality? Because you said you're not interested in the uh, prescriptions uh, side of it, and I see um, ethics and morality exactly as that. And 
it's also interesting to talk about whether or not ethics and morality themselves are objective, because if they're not objective, then there is no point of having any kind of an organized, um, objective, um, kind of an approach towards them. Yes. Right? <clears throat> in fact, in uh, the classification between cosmology and geography that I was describing at the beginning, I think ethics and morality belong to the category of uh, geography because yes. they are very much human dependent and they are very much dependent on, dependent on one specific uh, place and uh, time in history. Uh, on the other hand, I understand that uh, for uh, most people, of course, uh, Ethics and morality are an extremely important thing. But I myself, I tend not to talk too much about ethics and morality. It's not that I don't think about these things, but I don't think I have a really useful contribution to make. And once again, the religious, uh, in the religious uh, transhumanist uh, groups that I mentioned, there is a lot of uh, discussion on ethics and morality. So once again, I'd like to encourage everyone to get information of the Mormon and Christian transhumanist associations. Um, I don't... Uh, think I can do better than that on the theme of ethics and morality. Yeah, I understand. I had Lincoln Cannon, who I believe he started uh, Mormon Transhumanist Association. Yes, he did. Yeah, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think he's, he's a wonderful man and a very nice uh, person. But I think Mormonism in Mormon Transhumanist Association is benefiting from transhumanist side much more than the transhumanist side is benefiting from Mormonism. I don't really think so. How? I don't really think so, because, you know, if uh, you look at what uh, the founding fathers of the modern religions have said in the 19th century, you find out that a lot of uh, the concepts that we describe in uh, transhumanist were there. Right. Uh, not very similar concepts, exactly the same concepts, like uh, the potential for humans to become uh, godlike, right. like uh, the fact uh, that uh, reality does not have uh, separate material and uh, spiritual uh, parts, but everything is entangled, as Joseph Smith said, uh, spirit is a refined form of matter. You know, all these things uh, can be found in the writings of the fathers of the modern religions with uh, some uh, very clearly transhumanist uh, concepts. As a matter of fact, uh, Mormonism is unique because, for example, if you think of mainstream Christianity, it is also possible to find these concepts in mainstream Christianity, but it's much more difficult. To find these things in Mormonism is very easy because they have been uh, uh, written 
a couple of centuries ago by the people who are still considered as the prophets of the Mormon religion. So I really think uh, Mormonism is a perfect match for transhumanism. Now, of course, uh, Mormonism has uh, that uh, geographic part. You know, for example, I am uh, European and a coffee drinker. When I go to Utah, I find that, you know, they don't drink uh, coffee, they right. don't drink anything hot, uh, they don't do this and they don't do that. I mean, these kind of prescriptions are extremely far from me. And uh, I don't care about that at all. I think uh, this is a difference, but uh, it's not uh, a difference that matters that much. I mean, I like to drink coffee, you don't like to drink coffee, and that's it. Yeah, so within the context of religion, I, I do agree that Mormonism is the most compatible with transhumanism. But my point is that why the concept of transhumanism, which I see it as a decentralized concept, we talked a little about how it, it differs science and technology and, and the way that we are looking at the truth compared to organized religion. So to make a organized religion into a transhumanist movement, and I know that trans, uh, Mormon Transhumanist Association <coughs> has a lot of disagreement within the Mormon community as well with more um, conventional fundamentalist Mormons. But at the same time, I just see it that, yes, there are teachings and there are perspectives that are more aligned with transhumanism compared to other religions but at the same time it comes with a lot of other things that has absolutely nothing to do with this quest of human evolution and finding the truth and technological uh, evolution overall it does but uh, you know at least from my point of view the parallels are uh, much more important than the differences mm. And from the point of view of uh, people in the Mormon Transhumanist Association as well. Now, if you ask the same question to some uh, Mormon in the street who has never heard of transhumanism, now, uh, they could see things differently, of course. Do you feel the same way about Scientology? I don't know. I don't really know that much about Scientology. If, for example, somebody I mean, starts... What, a I mean, look, uh, yeah. what, uh, whatever I say about Scientology would be stupid because I know almost nothing about it. If somebody starts a Scientologist transhumanist organizations, because I'm sure we can find some things that will be aligned with the big picture and the philosophy. Would that be something that you'd be interested to look further into or become a member of just because there are some similarities considering everything else that can be completely in, um, in opposition to the values that, uh, let's say transhumanist movement has. Since I'm a curious person, I would certainly uh, take a look and uh, try to understand as quickly as possible what it is that they are actually saying. Uh, on the basis of what I have seen so far, um, I don't think uh, 
I would be inclined to explore further after the first look. But of course, I could be wrong. Right. Well, that's consistent. The curiosity part that you say, and I totally share that. Uh, A few months ago, when I was in LA, they took me to a big uh, Scientology church. And I had the picture of me taken. And I put it on Instagram uh, saying uh, something like, uh, what are the lessons that I should learn from uh, Big Brother? (laughs) But, um, you know, it was really a joke. I have never felt uh, the need to explore Scientology in more detail. Perhaps I'm wrong, of course. Yeah, I mean, anything can have, like you said, something to contribute depending on the perspective, right? I think so. I I most definitely think so. Um, Physics is based, understanding of physics is based on understanding of mathematics. Is that right? Um, You know, I tend to think that is understanding of mathematics that uh, is based on understanding of physics. (laughs) You find uh, the reasoning. It's like chicken and egg. yeah, you find the, you find the reasoning uh, behind all that in my book, but uh, it's certain that uh, mathematics and physics are very strongly interlinked. So, do you think, which unfortunately is not the case, or is not the case yet, for uh, mathematics and biology, or mathematics and psychology, or mathematics and uh, basically any other science besides physics? Mm-hmm. Do you think mathematics was uh, discovered or invented? Mathematics is uh, certainly suggested by the physical world. There is uh, a very interesting book called uh, something like Where Mathematics uh, Came From written by cognitive scientists, where they argue that, you know, uh, the kind of mathematics that we have uh, developed is uh, and can only be very strongly constrained by facts, like, uh, for example, that we have uh, 10 fingers on which we can uh, count things and that we are able to estimate uh, sizes and uh, distances of things. Then, you know, uh, I wouldn't say discovered or invented, but I would say that uh, the concepts of mathematics that we have developed are uh, very much influenced by the physical world and our way, our human way of uh, interacting with uh, the physical world. So perhaps uh, beings uh, very different from us. Imagine, for example, uh, the plasma beings that have been described by some uh, science fiction authors like uh, Fred Hoyle. I think these beings could develop concepts of mathematics very different from ours. Mm. Interesting. The reason I ask is because some people make the argument that the uncertainty that we are experiencing, 
let's say, in the waves in the ocean or the flocks of birds flying. We can't really measure them because they're not quantifiable. And when they're quantifiable, they can be predicted. And that would be on, on the basis of mathematics through which algorithms they can make sense out of them. So it's interesting to me whether or not mathematics is, in a way, a fabric of this reality that we're experiencing or maybe a layer of the fabric of the reality that we're experiencing, where it's something that is um, basically developed by human understanding of reality, and it will at some point reach its limits because of it. I don't know, of course, because nobody does, but I can uh, very much appreciate this point of view. Mm. What are your thoughts on uh, Neuralink? Again, um, the idea of augmenting our cognitive ability rather than building a model of a human brain inside of a machine. Um, no, I really hope Elon Musk will uh, show some uh, Neuralink uh, prototypes someday. We haven't really seen much so far. One, you know, one event. One event last year. Uh, yes, but um, it didn't really show prototypes that we can test. Right. Not yet. Not yet. I believe uh, he's saying that uh, they will show something soon. Now, what is Neuralink going to be? It's going to be some kind of uh, brain-to-computer interface, which will permit uh, doing uh, some interesting things. Mm, I would uh, still see it uh, as a baby step. Uh, it will help uh, paralyzed people to, to uh, move around, and that's something good. It will help uh, people uh, to send uh, tweets by thought. And that's also a cool gadget. But, you know, by real brain-computer interface, I mean uh, something by which I can uh, achieve a very deep integration between my mind and the computer. And that, I think, uh, will come someday, but we are still far from it. Um, ben Gortzel, who I'm sure you're familiar with, his sure. his singularity net approach is that artificial general intelligence will be the result of millions and millions of different AIs on the on the basis of a decentralized platform, and this is different than the approach that let's say DeepMind has or Google is having that it's a centrally controlled artificial intelligence that they will basically they will have control over data, which uh, to me, that really what comes down to that whether or not humans will have their data dependency on a centralized organization or a structure of authority or a decentralized kind of a platform. Do you think there is any uh, certainty of which approach would be, quote unquote, right approach towards what you're talking about, um, human mind and machines becoming one? Uh, you know, for what concerns artificial intelligence, there is no reason why uh, both approaches couldn't be right. 
I mean, there is not only one way of doing things. In many cases, we find that there are uh, many different ways to do things, and each specific way has uh, its uh, advantages and uh, disadvantages compared to the others. I would expect uh, that will uh, apply to research in artificial intelligence as well. When it uh, comes uh, to interfacing machines uh, with uh, human brains, then I think uh, we have to take uh, the architecture of the human brain into account. I mean, we do know the architecture of our machines because we have uh, uh, built these machines, but there are still things, and perhaps there are still many things, that we don't know about uh, the architecture of our own uh, uh, brains. So when it comes to brain-machine interfacing, I guess uh, the best, most, more, most efficient, most useful approach will be the approach that more uh, faithfully uh, repro uh, exploits the specific architecture, the specific uh, cognitive architecture of our brain. Which would be centralized? Um, I will... Uh, Many people would answer yes. Right. Uh, let me be a bit more open and say perhaps. Yeah, because uh, the way that we are experiencing right now with big tech companies, a manipulation of data and basically evaluating what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, in, in a very small scale, what it is right now. But we are seeing that it has huge social impacts, You know, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, some people can make the argument that, well, what is the point of having a chip inside my brain? I'm just using the term that people would use. And then Google would ha uh, would own all my thoughts and all the data that is coming out. And uh, the contrast to that is that you have a decentralized platform that nobody would have any kind of a control or any kind of um, authority over evaluating your thoughts and data. Mm, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Unfortunately, uh, decentralization does not mean uh, freedom from control. Uh, you know, uh, simple. You know, simple example. Just think of Bitcoin, which uh, started as an incarnation of uh, the libertarian uh, dream of uh, complete decentralization and invulnerability from government control and uh, just see what happens. Now they can uh, monitor each and every Bitcoin transaction and if you are not extremely careful, they can immediately trace it back to you. Uh, it's always a leapfrog things. There are uh, technologies that can be used for surveillance then someone will develop countermeasures countermeasures for that. But then someone else would develop counter-countermeasures uh, and so on. It's like, you know, uh, right, a, feedback that, loop, right? yeah, a thing that goes on and on with uh, one leapfrogging the other and so forth. And uh, if you want to predict 
uh, who will win. It is very difficult because on the one hand, the authorities have all the money. On the other hand, the hackers uh, are uh, usually smarter and more motivated. So who wins at the end, who knows, is one of those uh, uncomputable problems that I like to write about. Yeah, and also this conflict that is caused by it, it seems to be just as natural and the rest of the aspect of humanity. Like, wait, so. yeah, someone come with a tool and somebody else come with a counter of it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let me just ask you about SpaceX's uh, latest launch. Um, I was there. A lot of people were there. Very, very excited about it. I was, and I was there glued to the TV all the time. It was uh, really historic. It was uh, uh, glorious, unfortunately. From Europe, I have uh, to watch it on TV. But you know, I would have uh, really liked, liked to watch with uh, with my eyes. It's, uh, it was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment because uh, uh, it marked the beginning of an era in which uh, commercial uh, space company are going to be more and more actively involved in space exploration and it marked uh, the first use with human astronauts of uh, the technology of reusable launchers which promises a really big reduction in the cost of space launch and as you know once you reduce the cost of access to space which has been uh, the limiting factor so far. You know, everything can happen. So I really do praise uh, uh, NASA, Jim Bridestein, Elon Musk, the astronauts, and all the team for this huge achievement. And I would like to see more uh, and more of that. Now, the current U.S. administration has said that uh, they plan to send people on the moon by 2024. Um, I think that would be perhaps a little bit unrealistic, but I really hope to see human astronauts walking on the moon by the end of this decade. And how far until we get to Mars? No, we can. Uh, we could uh, go to Mars the day after, perhaps. That's what uh, Elon Musk wants to do. He would like, uh, perhaps, even to go directly to Mars without uh, establishing an outpost on the Moon first. Mm, no, I think is. Going to take still some uh, time before we are uh, ready for uh, the establishment of a massive colony on Mars. I'd like to see it, of course. Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, you know, realistically, I don't think I will. In the meantime, there is a lot of useful experience that uh, can be gained by starting 
using industrially the resources on the moon. And in that sense, I think uh, a sustainable return to the moon is a necessary step for uh, further expansion into the solar system. And then perhaps when the time is right for uh, expansion into interstellar space. Yeah, I think it was great. It was my second launch that I saw. The first one was Falcon Heavy. And um, seeing those two Falcons coming back down, it really was yeah. a spiritual experience. It is. It is. It is. And, you know, it was a very solid understanding for me how we are finding more about ourselves through this quest of learning more about science and technology and building better tools and it, it just it seems like we are living in a time that everything is coming together in a way that we have to address them and we have to understand them in order to take another step forward. It's a beautiful time, but at the same time, there are a lot of things that are happening that people can be like, oh, the, the world is falling apart and all that. <laughs> of course. But maybe it has always, it has always been like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And it will always be like that. Yeah. Julia, what is uh, next for you and where can our audience follow your work? My main website is uh, turingchurch.net. And uh, if you go to my website, then first I think uh, you will, uh, first I think you will read my book, which is called uh, Tales of the Turing Church, Hacking Religion. Enlightening Science, Awakening Technology. I hope you will buy my book, which is very cheap. But if you cannot uh, buy my book, don't worry, because there is also a free version online. Then uh, read uh, the, latest, the latest essays, and especially join our uh, groups on Facebook and uh, other social media. And just let us know. I'm always happy to interact with newcomers. Excellent. Awesome. Let me ask you the last question I ask all my guests. That if you come across an intelligent alien from a different civilization, what would you say is the worst thing humanity has done? And what would you say is our greatest achievement? The worst thing that humanity has done and our greatest achievement. You know, that's a very difficult question. Don't you? <laughs> Let me just think, because uh, I wasn't expecting this. Perhaps yeah, that's good. <laughs> our uh, greatest achievement is that uh, after having done many stupid things and after having done many bad things, and I'm referring here to the, all the atrocities that have been committed by all civilization throughout the whole of history, after having done these very bad things, we are here now and uh, we are thinking of uh, how we can avoid doing uh, other bad things in the future. And we are still thinking of how we could uh, ever uh, become uh, a more uh, kind and uh, uh, gentle civilization. Mm -hmm.